Second Kings chapter 13. Second Kings chapter 13. For those of you who've joined us online, I haven't looked at your comments, but I'm sure a lot of you said I can't hear. You're not the only one, but I hope you're able to hear now. And so let's get right into our lesson. Last week we learned about the bow of God's strength and the arrow of God's deliverance. We finished verse 23, again in 2 Kings chapter 13, we finished verse 23 and were reminded of God's long-suffering, His patience toward Israel. As the verse said, I'm going to go back and read verse 23 and then go right into verse 24. And the Lord was gracious unto them, that is, unto Israel, and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, neither cast he them from his presence as yet. And God's long suffering toward a disobedient people has also been the subject of our study of Hosea, which will take place in the service after this one. So you get a double dose of God's long-suffering, and we need it, don't we? Because we certainly test his uh, patience, as it were. Now we're in verse 24. So Hazael, king of Syria, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his stead. Another Ben-Hadad replaces another Hazael, and as, you've may, or as you may have learned in our studies before, Ben-Hadad and Hazael were common names for kings in Syria, just like Herod was over Judea and Caesar over Rome and so forth. In verse 25, And Jehoash, that's the same as Joash, the son of Jehoahaz took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times did Joash beat him and recovered the cities of Israel. This is what we'd call a wash or a tie. You think about it, Syria took land from Israel, and Israel took it back. And then Syria would take it again, and Israel would take it back. That's kind of how this went with every country that was an enemy to Israel. And in those wars, though, the people who died and the people who suffered wouldn't see it as a tie. They'd see it as a loss. So in, in ceding Israel's land to Syria and then getting it back, and then losing it and getting it back, you might say, well, that's a tie. Well, geographically, maybe so. But not when there were people who died and whose lives were affected and whose property was destroyed. Many people died during those wars. Much property was destroyed, and had Israel beheld her God as she was commanded... Had she walked in his statutes and in his commandments, none of those things would have befallen her. That's what God told them in the first place. But Israel sinned. She lost her land. God was merciful, so Israel regained what she lost. 
that's still not a profitable situation. God's people, and this is us, God's people should be in the spiritual business for a spiritual profit. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 is a verse the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesian pastor Timothy. And in doing so, he encouraged him to keep preaching the word because that was profitable. He said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then further in 1 Timothy, in chapter 4 and verse 8, 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8, Paul wrote, For bodily exercise profiteth little. He's not talking about going to the gym necessarily. He's talking about the works of the hands, the things that you do. But godliness is profitable unto all things having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Let me give you an example as we study this situation of being profitable spiritually. Most people who gamble at casinos lose money in the long run. Now they may win, and I know some people who go every week, and they'll tell me about it, and I'll say, well, what you need to do is get out of debt. And we'll talk about that later. But they win $1,000 today. And boy, they say, look at there, I won $1,000 at the casino. But next week, they lose $2,000. And then the following week, they win $1,000 again. They say, look at all this money I won. You know what their profit is? It's zero. In fact, it's less than that. Because they burned a lot of gas money and ate a lot of food and probably drank some alcohol and spent the night in a crazy expensive hotel, wherever they went. So they actually lost a lot of money. But because they won last week or two weeks ago, that's the lure. That's the carrot that says, hey, go back. Just just go back one more time. You'll make up for your losses. Many gamblers are in financial debt. And yet, they still throw their money to the slot machines, to the poker table, to the uh, lotto. And some people do what's called day trading, try to hit it big with a stock. You know, buy it today and sell it tomorrow and buy it today and sell it tomorrow and time the stock market just right. And many of those people, in fact, most of them, lose terribly. And some of them even commit suicide because they've lost everything. But if those people, the gamblers, took what they had, they obviously had money to be able to go to the casinos in the first place. And if they took what they had and invested that money in a reliable mutual fund or a bond or even a savings account, They'd come out way ahead in the long run compared to what they did with the money at the casinos. You know what the the attraction is for the casino money? Is it's right now. 
I can make it rich right now, today, in one pull, one game, one roll of the dice. Bet on one football game. But it rarely turns out that way. In 20 years, if those people invested that money, even in a very low-interest-bearing savings account, where you don't make a whole lot, guess what they'd have in 20 years? They'd have more money than what they put in, not less. The gambler has less than what he invested almost overnight. And like a person who has $1,000 in their hand, we have God's Word. We have it right here. You might even have it in your hand right now, whether it's on your phone or it's a Bible. Maybe it's in your lap, but you have it. And God has testified that His Word is profitable. And he told us how it's profitable. He said it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So if we are wise investors in God's word, then next year we'll have more doctrine in our spiritual bank account, more doctrine that we understand than we did the year before. In fact, if we invest in God's Word, we study it, we learn it, we come to Sunday school, we uh, read it, we memorize it, we try to apply it in our lives, we will never have less in our spiritual bank account than we did before. Never. Because we have invested in something that God testified is profitable. Now, where a lot of people in modern religion go wrong is with these prosperity gospel preachers who say that the word invest necessarily means financially. In other words, send me money and you'll get a big check in your mailbox or dollar bills will fall out of the sky like manna. And none of that's true. That's a scam. What they don't tell you is that the profitable, the promise of God's word being profitable most of the time has nothing to do with getting a bunch of money. Rarely. It's doctrine. And if doctrine is not precious to you, if what God's Word teaches, that's what doctrine is, is what you're taught. If God's Word, if doctrine is not precious to you, then you've already got your priorities messed up. If a dollar bill is more precious to you than doctrine, then your priorities are already out of whack. But a person, a person who invests in God's Word will have more in their spiritual bank account. They'll be wiser. They'll have more doctrine. They will have been instructed more often than the one who is the spiritual gambler because here's what that person does. You're thinking about the kings of Israel. The spiritual gambler has God's Word, but he or she trades it for the lusts of the flesh. So rather than spending time in prayer, that spiritual gambler will brag on his own achievements. Rather than spending time studying his Bible, he'll study pornography. Rather than receiving the correction that God's Word offers, the spiritual gambler will stiffen his neck and bow his chest out at God and say, I don't need any of that. I'm fine just like I am. And so in 10 or 20 years... 
what will that spiritual gambler's bank account look like? Well, it'll look a lot like Lot's spiritual bank account, whose own family mocked him. Now, remember, the Bible said Lot was a just man. He was saved. But his family mocked him when he tried to warn them of God's judgment on Sodom. He said, let's get out of here. And they, he seemed as one that mocked. We looked at that verse uh, a few weeks ago. Now, the spiritual gambler may brag about all the beer he's drunk and all the women he's chased and all the money he's made and the high positions he's held in society. But in all that, he's profited nothing spiritually. In fact, he's lost a bunch. He's lost a whole lot. And I'll tell you, there were some times in my Christian life where I was bankrupt. I was profitless. I wasn't profiting. I was investing in the wrong thing. Thank God for his grace. And Lot's sons-in-law, and you think about this, because Lot was spiritually bankrupt, meaning in doctrine, in correction, in reproof, and in instruction in righteousness. His sons-in-law stayed in Sodom, and what happened to them? They died. His wife looked back. What happened to her? She turned to a pillar of salt, so she died. His daughters committed incest with him after they escaped, and out of that illicit union were Moab, the Moabites, were born and the Ammonites. Another example. Here's a really specific way that we give away spiritual land, because that's what we're talking about, is what is the spiritual significance of Israel giving away land to Syria and then getting it back and giving it away and getting it back? What's the spiritual significance? So here's a specific way we give away spiritual land when we ignore God's Word. In other words, when we don't invest in what God's Word says about a particular thing. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27. Ephesians 4, verses 26 through 27. And that is one sentence. It's captured in two verses, but it's just one sentence where Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. The word place we'll come back to. Neither give place to the devil. So what the verse is telling us is it's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to be angry and then sin. So be ye angry and sin not. When you are angry, don't sin. And here's the specific way that you would sin by being angry. By letting the sun go down upon your wrath. That's, a, that's kind of a metaphor we have in our minds for something that lasts into the next day. If we let the sun go down upon our wrath, what that means is at the moment we were angry, we didn't take care of it scripturally. We let it fester. And that anger turned into a grudge. The sun went down on it. And we are not to turn this righteous anger, because there is righteous anger. 
God is angry every day with the wicked. When we hear, and you don't have to read very far in the news to get angry, do you? You read about um, a man who assassinates his own children and wife because he can't stand the thought of her being with somebody else. So he just kills them all. We had that in uh, one of those in Rockwall County the other day. man murdered his wife. Couldn't stand it that they weren't going to be together anymore. So now those three children they had are without a mother, and they're going to be without their dad for the rest of his natural life if we don't execute him. We being the state of Texas. I'm not into the business. But what happens when that righteous anger that we have on something like that turns into a grudge? What if I said, you know, it's not enough for me that that man got arrested? It's not enough for me that he's sitting in jail. Boy, when he gets out, I'm going to do such and such to him. Now, that's where I turn my righteous anger into something that is not righteous. We have a legal system, and we need to let that legal system take care of that business. But when we do let the righteous anger turn into the, to a grudge, the scripture that I read you tells us that we are giving place to the devil. We're giving it to him. By sinning, just like Israel gave land to the Syrians and the Babylonians and everyone else who was their enemy, whenever the, Israel, the children of Israel sinned. And the word place in the text I read you is from the Greek word topos, T-O-P-O-S. Have you ever heard of a topographical map? Yeah, well, a topographical map is kind of a fancy map because it, let's say we had a topographical map of the Sexton Estates outside this town somewhere, large swath of land. And it's not flat like a table. It has places that are higher, like where the house is built, so it won't flood. In places that are a little bit lower, maybe even a creek or a pond. And what a topographical map will show is not only the area, how wide it is and how tall it is on the map, but it will show where the, the different elevation changes are. There are curved lines and so forth. So a topographical map is a map of a place with a lot of detail. And that's where the, the word comes from. When, you, when we give place to the devil, we're giving him spiritual land. Just like Israel gave Syria geographical land. But in our case, does the devil just come and take our spiritual land? No, we give it to him. It says neither give place to the devil. We give it to him. We yield it to him when we ignore what God's word says about letting the sun go down on our wrath. And when we do that, it's not profitable. And getting that land, that spiritual land back, is sometimes a lot of trouble. Requires repentance, doesn't it? Requires you to back up a little bit and say, Oh, Lord, I was wrong about that. I want to handle this the right way. I want to let my wrath go down before the sun goes down. And although Israel got their land back from Syria, they had not profited. And throughout history, they would lose more and more land, and they're not done losing it yet. 
And had Israel, Israel obeyed the scriptures and invested themselves in godliness, they would have profited and not suffered loss. Boy, when they came out of Egypt to the wilderness, that was profit because they weren't slaves anymore. But when God took them out of the wilderness after wandering them through it for 40 years and delivered them into the promised land, a land that was already made for them, flowing with milk and honey, and gave it to them, that was profitable. They got something they never had before, and they got it by grace. They didn't earn it, and they didn't buy it. And when Joshua separated that land and said, hey, to the tribe of Dan, this is where your people are going to live. This is your land over here. And to the tribe of Judah, you'll be here. And all of that he did with the tribes except for the Levites because the Lord was their possession. So every square inch of that land that God originally gave to them belongs to them, but they yielded it to their enemies whenever they sinned. Now let's go into chapter 14. And it says in verse 1, In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. So our study now takes us back to the south, to the kingdom of Judah, which was comprised of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But it's called Judah. So we're not in Israel, the northern kingdom anymore. And every time we... Or every time I explain that, it reminds me that Israel, which was once one nation, is divided. And that's always what sin does. It divides. It doesn't unite. Sometimes the studies in the Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, remind me of a soap opera. I know none of you are so spiritually weak that you watch soap operas. My, my grandmother used to... She would do anything for me, but boy, when it was time for as the world turns, now this is when I was a kid before it, these things became almost X-rated, uh, she would say, we'll do that after I watch my program. <laughs> so, and I, I remember, I thought, well, what is the big deal with a soap opera? So I sat in, of course, I was a little boy, I was bored, but what I noticed is, about the time something was fixing to happen here, they cut it off and they went over here to something else, that was a happening. And then about the time something was about to happen over here, they went back to this other scene, and I thought, how do you keep up with this? And sometimes studying the books of the Kings and the Chronicles is like that. You say, all right, I'm following. And all of a sudden it says, uh, in the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, where we were, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, yonder over here, not in Israel. So that's where we have to go right now. Another Amaziah, whose father was also named Joash, but not the Joash of Israel. Verse 2, he was 20 and 5 years old. Now, this is Amaziah. That's who we're thinking about right now. That He was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadon of Jerusalem. Now, we don't usually learn the mother's name. Jehoadon means... Jehovah delights. 
And other than the parallel verse, the same verse essentially, in Second Chronicles 25 verse 1, we don't read anything else about Jehoadon, Amaziah's mother. But God had a reason for telling us her name. Amaziah's father, Joash, was the king who was raised by Jehoiada the priest and hidden in the temple for the first six years of his life because of wicked Athaliah, his grandma. You never thought a grandma could be wicked. You know there are some wicked grandmas in the world. Mine weren't, but I know there are some. And Athaliah was one of them. What a, what a terrible, terrible shame that a little boy would have to grow up and say, my grandmother Athaliah was one of the most wicked people that ever lived on this earth. But she was. And in Joash's uh, introduction, his mother was also mentioned. But as we learned, she wasn't the one who raised him. He was raised by somebody else in the temple. Verse 3, And he, that's Amaziah, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. Now David was not his uh, biological father. That was Joash. But you see that in the Bible like David his father, meaning his forefather, his ancestor, way back when. That's a common reference in the Bible to refer to the father or the fathers as the ancestors rather than the immediate family, biological father. He did according to all things as uh, Joash his father did, howbeit the high places were not taken away. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So let's look at first in verse 3. Amaziah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It says, yet not like David his father. So we have here in Amaziah another good king, but one who lacked the spiritual strength to do as his father David did. David was not perfect. We already know that. We spent a lot of time looking at his imperfections as well as his uh, holy living and how he was a, a friend of God like no other. But David was the one to whom the good kings were compared. If you're a good king, let's see where you stack up with David. Do you do as he did or do you fall short a little bit? And the bad kings, the evil kings, were compared to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So how was it that Amaziah, although he was a good king, how was it that he was not like David, his father? Well, we'll look at that. Verse 4, Howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. In other words, the high places remained, and the people continued to sacrifice there. If the liquor store stands, the drunks are going to buy liquor. If the casino stands, the gamblers are going to throw their money at the, in the slots and on the poker table, on the altar of the idol of greed. And if the strip club remains, then those who lust after strippers are going to go inside. And that's the way it is with this church, these churches in the high places in the Bible. If you leave them standing, the people who worship there are going to keep going and worshiping there. If nothing else changes. How was David different than Amaziah? Well, let me give you a couple of scriptural references here. 
First one is 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Samuel 5, verse 21. And in that chapter, after David had smitten, defeated the Philistines, his men burned their images, that is, their, their idols. And I studied the term high places, and I could not find any time during David's reign, his time in Hebron or his time in Judah, I, or Jerusalem, I could not find any time when the people worshipped in the high places. I saw no reference to there being high places built in David's reign. So it seems to me that there were no high places in David's reign. It's not that David tore them down, it's that they were never built in the first place. But in Solomon's day, his son, there were high places. So when we read that Amaziah did right, but not like David his father, I think we are right in our understanding that one way Amaziah gave place to the devil was by giving place to the high places. The people were worshiping there, his constituents, his voters, and instead of marching in the middle of them and saying, all of you are in prison because you're worshiping a God other than the one true God, and this place is coming down, and I mean right now. He didn't do that. He yielded geographical land because he had yielded spiritual land. You get that? Amaziah was not a spiritually strong person. Yes, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not like David, his father. He wasn't near the spiritual giant that David was. And one of the examples given in the Bible is this. He left the high places alone. David, on the other hand, did not do this. Yes, David sinned in other ways, but not in this way. Amaziah may have reasoned, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Think about David. If, if, if the case is that there were no high places in Judah, think about the people who were under David. They knew he meant business, didn't they? David wasn't playing around with the holiness of God. He wasn't playing around with idol worship and, and the high places and all that. And if David had heard that Otis over here had made a foundation for the church of the golden calf, he would have sent his men right there to kill Otis and to uproot that foundation. He wouldn't have let it be built. For something to be built, it takes a while, doesn't it? Especially if the government's doing it. That was free. Now, look, at, look back in verse uh, 3. It says, he, that's Amaziah, did according to all things as Joash his father did. As his father Joash also left the high places standing, didn't he? That's what we learn there. In fact, I'll just refresh your memory. 2 Kings chapter 12 and verse 3, we've already studied this. And here's what it says about Joash. But the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Same as Amaziah. 
So what Amaziah may have done here, he may have reasoned, if my father was okay leaving the high places alone, then I too shall let them be. And I wonder if when Joash was raising Amaziah, if they talked about that, if they had a conversation about those high places. He may have told Amaziah, hey, look, I let these high places stand when I was on the throne, and they've caused me a lot of trouble. You probably should get rid of them when you get the throne. Or maybe he didn't say anything to him. Maybe he said, hey, just leave them alone. They're not hurting anybody. But he may have told Amaziah to get rid of the high places, much like Solomon told his son not to make the same mistakes that Solomon made, which we're studying about in the book of Proverbs, particularly like loving the strange woman. Solomon did that way too many times to count. Now, parents, this can be a tricky road to navigate right here. I'm just going to be real with you. On the one hand, if you tell your children about your own past sin and its negative consequences to try to teach them something, they're going to respond in one of two ways. One, they'll learn from your warnings and not take that crooked path. The other, and I think probably the most common, is they'll take that crooked path and they'll say, well, you did it. So, yeah. so some of y'all are nodding your head, and I'm not even going to, because I'm not, you did it. That's a reason for the unholy living. Well, you did it. Well, God never does say, do it because your dad did it when it was wrong, or your mom did it, or you saw grandpa do it, and it's wrong. So let me give you a suggestion. For most of us, it's too late. We've done raised them, and they're raising their own. But I might suggest to you that it would have been better to just show them what God's Word says and hold them to it. Teach them about those in the Bible who obeyed God's word and those who did not. And it may save you some trouble in that area that I just told you about. We'll leave that up to you. But you'll never go wrong when you teach a child, for example, thou shalt not steal. You teach them what stealing is because they don't know when they're little, if they want something in the house and, and they're allowed to get it, well, they just get it. They don't say, can I pick up my toy? Or can I go in this room and, and do this over here? And when you go into a store and they just grab something that looks good off the shelf and start eating it, they don't know any better until you tell them, hey, put that back. Here's why we don't do that. This is not yours. Somebody's phone's still alive. Um, might silence that if you would. But we have to tell them why it's wrong before they understand. And so if we'll just take them to God's Word instead of saying, you know, when your daddy was growing up, I used to steal candy bars and all that. What's the only thing they heard you tell them during that whole lesson? Dad used to steal. Instead of, Dad used to steal, but it was wrong, and he's teaching us that God's Word says, thou shalt not steal. Because of the, the carnal mind, because of the nature of the flesh, they're going to remember so if I ever steal and dad gets on to me, I can say, you did it. So just stick with what the Bible says. If it's too late, it's too late. If it's not, maybe try that. 
verse 5. And it came to pass, as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand, that is Amaziah's hand, that he slew his servants which had slain the king his father. Now this is called retribution right here. In chapter 12, verse 20, that's where Joash's servants slew him. And we read about it a few weeks ago. So Amaziah's reign begins with blood. Because after all, how could he be sure that these same men who slew his father wouldn't rise up and kill him too? They had proven themselves to be untrustworthy already. And therefore, they were unprofitable. In verse 6, But the children of the murderers he slew not, according to that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, The fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor the children be put to death for the fathers. But every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And that law is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. Deuteronomy 24, 16, that's what he's quoting there. Don't you love that? He had some spiritual investment in God's word, and it profited him and those children of the murderers. It profited him in that he did not take a life unjustly. He executed capital punishment on those who killed his father. Good call. But not on their children because God said don't, don't kill their children for it. God said, if a man shed blood, by man's hand shall his blood be shed. So that was good. So Amaziah wasn't a total loss, was he? He just wasn't like David, his father. But in this, he did right. And next week, we will look at this a little more closely at this question, what does it mean that the children aren't responsible for the sins of the father? What does that mean and what does it not mean? And God willing, we'll pick up there in verse 6 and expound on that next week. Let's pray. Father, your word's been good to study today. Thank you for the leading of your spirit in expounding these truths. And thank you for the good attention of the people. And I pray, Lord, that these words would not escape us but they would find a lodging place in our hearts, that we would walk by them, that we would profit, as you promised that your word would do when we obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.